being here with us today. My name's Rodney, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, looking forward to continuing in the book of Hebrews with you. Uh, before we dive into uh, Hebrews 7 this morning, um, I did want to give a little update clarification on an announcement. So on May 22nd, uh, we have a child dedication Sunday coming up. So uh, if you, you should have received an email about that. If you're interested in taking part in that, we've had a lot of new babies in the last few months, and uh, we, we want to thank God for that together. Uh, we'd love to have you take part in that. Just send an email this week. Um, family, our child dedication Sundays are always uh, one of our most highly attended Sundays, so we just want to make sure we have everything in order and that we could celebrate accordingly. Um, a child dedication, if you're new, um, this isn't like a christening. Uh, it's not a promise of salvation or anything like that, but it is an acknowledgement that God has blessed us robustly and that children are a gift from him. And so we want to acknowledge that gift as a body while also charging our parents and reminding them that they are not alone um, and giving God the praise he is due uh, for the children that he has added. So um, that's going to be on the 22nd. And on that same day, we're also going to recognize kids by graduating uh, kids from Little Sprouts. So kids that are five years old and over um, will graduate on May 22nd. And we're going to give you some information that day on how you can incorporate, how we can incorporate them into the gathering uh, through family discipleship as well as through a corporate body. So we're looking forward to bringing some of our school-aged kids into uh, the, the, the larger gathering and then spending the summer uh, continuing to explore and figure out um, how to do Little Sprouts uh, even better. So that's all coming up on May 22nd. Today, uh, like I said, we'll be continuing in Hebrews chapter 7. And last week, Brandon did an excellent job of presenting the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7, where we see Jesus compared to Melchizedek. In this morning's case, the author is going to continue to make his de defense for the superiority of Christ, starting in verse 11. I want to pray, and then we'll dive in to our, that first verse. Lord, thank you for this day, for the opportunity uh, to gather here in this place as your people. Um, might we not take those words for granted? We are your people uh, because we have a great high priest, uh, a high priest greater than any who have ever attempted that position before. Um, Lord, might Jesus Christ be the source of our hope and all sorts of afflictions this morning. Might he be the source of humility. Uh, might you use your word to bring us to your very feet that we might submit and follow you wherever you would lead us. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work in us this morning through your word. And I ask this in the name of our great high priest, King Jesus. Amen. This morning, starting in, we'll be starting in verse 11, where it says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? A little background. We've been talking about the priesthood and Melchizedek now for nearly a month, but it's a huge theme the predominant theme of the book of Hebrews. It's difficult this morning to, um, considering last week and this week, this text, to consider the full weight of what the author is saying here because we're not wrestling with the implications of our former Judaism. However, we have all been affected by some degree with the same struggle, and thus there's a clear application as we all have a tendency towards legalism to some extent or another. For those receiving this word, the implication of Christ's priesthood could not possibly be overstated because both then and now, 
Christ's priesthood changes everything about this religious system. Up to this point, everything about the Jewish life centered around the priesthood. God had established the Levitical priesthood through the tribe of Levi, and they upheld the Mosaic law, most of which is found in the book of Leviticus, where we get the name Levite. They represented the people of Israel before God. And the Levites had such a weighty and revered responsibility that the other tribes actually took up offerings to support them in this important work that God had called this tribe, this people, to do. Yet what's revealed here in verse 11 is that this was never God's ultimate plan. And the church should have picked up on this, but what we're seeing happening here amongst the people that Hebrews is being written to is they didn't pick up on this. They're still clinging to Judaism, to the law as their source of salvation, even while they're supposedly gathering in the name of Christ. And this continues to be a problem for people throughout all of the days. And the very fact that the Lord speaks of the priest of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, which Brandon uh, spoke of last week, makes it clear that God always had a superior priest in mind. Now, as we look at these further verses this morning, I want you to make no mistake. The Levitical priesthood served an important role in redemptive history, but it was just a role. They never provided a means for salvation, at least not a means that could be attained by man. If we had the ability to achieve our salvation through our works, through our obedience to God, then the priesthood of Melchizedek would never have been needed and would not have been spoken of. But verse 12 through 14 says this, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Here we see this further description of these two priesthoods that we see at play. We have the Levitical priesthood, and the Levitical priesthood is centered around the words that were spoken to Moses, and essentially, obedience, the law, sets God's standard for holiness, and to have right standing, you must have that obedience. And so you would come to the priests for all of your shortcomings, and after they had made a sacrifice for themselves, they would make a sacrifice for you. But God knew that was only temporary. There was a far greater purpose for that. And so he established the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is an eternal priesthood, ultimately resounded in Christ. And this priesthood is not based off the law spoken to Moses, but it's based on the promise spoken to Abraham, the tribe of Judah. And in this priesthood, obedience equals Jesus. Salvation comes only through his righteousness. Now, this does not mean the fact that we see these two priesthoods spoken of and compared does not mean that the priesthood of Melchizedek was some kind of backup plan. God didn't wait. This is a common misunderstanding that maybe God waited to give people a chance under the law, and then when it was obvious that these people were out of control, he called an audible and established the priesthood of Melchizedek. This is not so. Jesus Christ was always the way. From the beginning, God had a plan to redeem and restore his people through Jesus Christ. The Levitical priesthood was important. They upheld the law and they upheld order, all of which was beneficial to God's people in the season of waiting while they awaited the perfect king. 
But their primary purpose, whether they always understood this completely or not, was always to set up and pave the way for the coming priesthood of Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. In verses 15 through 17, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Here he's pointing out the obvious, uh, the, the obvious distinction of Jesus as a priest. Jesus was not from the line of Aaron. And as we've learned over the last few weeks, this was a legal requirement to be part of the Levitical priesthood. According to the law, Jesus could not serve as a Levitical priest just solely based off his lineage. Yet his lineage was intentional. It was even greater because he was not from the tribe of Levi, but the line of Judah. And thus he fulfilled God's promise to restore and redeem his people. This made him qualified to serve as an even greater priest than all who had come before because he is a priest of promise. Not only is he a priest of promise, fulfilling the words spoken to Abraham, but more than that, we see here in this verse, he is a priest of power. His claim to priesthood is not based off some kind of legal requirement, as was so with the tribe of Levi. But this text tells us he was qualified by the power of an indestructible life. The Levitical priests, they could put forth a temporary atonement, but it was fleeting. It was always soaked in God's grace that he would accept those sacrifices for the moment he did, because those sacrifices paled in comparison to the offense of unholiness before a holy God. And above that, not only were the sacrifices incredibly insufficient, they, were ne they never accomplished anything other than demonstrating the perfect lamb you would bring before was always meant to be a picture of the perfect lamb that would come one day. Not only were those sacrifices fleeting, but the priests that offered them were fleeting because they would all die. They were not only sinners who had to put forward their own sacrifice for themselves before they put forward one from others, but their lives would end, and they would no longer be able to mediate on behalf of these people. The priesthood had to change constantly the people because they would die. They could only mediate for a moment, and they had nothing that was worthy of bringing before God ultimately. But the perfect priest, after the line of Melchizedek, he was qualified for his role on the basis of his perfection. This perfection included his indestructible life. Only the man who could walk out of the tomb could intervene for the people of God forever without end. Jesus Christ is our perfect priest of power and promise. He is our better hope and is described that way in the verses ahead starting in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn 
and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The law was beneficial in revealing God's standard and in setting the stage for the only one who could ever meet that standard. But it was weak and useless in terms of its power to save. And it's described that in these strong words by the author here. Because the law made nothing perfect. William Newell, in his commentary on Hebrews, says this. Let all legalists mark this. The law made nothing perfect. Let the Seventh-day Adventists mark. The law made nothing perfect. Let all those who dream of the law as a rule of life remember the law made nothing perfect. And the beauty of our perfect priest, we see the role of God's law displayed. And Romans 7, verses 7 and 8 describe this. It says this in Romans, Paul writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, said, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. We see that the law has a purpose. Not only, as we talked about with the kids, do the rules of God, are they not intended to protect a people who need some guidelines? Because we are no different than the child who wants to jump on the couch all day. We all have that. It's a little more grown-up version of that, but we all have it. We don't, the rules don't want to apply to us. That's why we're so, we struggle so much to submit to them. That's why somebody's my brother until he comes to me with sin, until he comes to me with truth about who I am, and then I can no longer be a part. This is our affliction. The law reveals sin in us. And it ultimately, though, reveals in us a need for a Savior. And this is the purpose of the law. Like an x-ray, the law of God reveals the depth of that which is broken and that which is in need of healing within us. In his book, Confessions, the great theologian of the ancient church, Augustine, described how this worked in his own life as a young man when he tells this story. There was a pear tree near our vineyard, laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and to carry away our spoils. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast on them ourselves, but to throw them away to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted. For I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only, the, the only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in the theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. The law reveals our brokenness. Not just our acts of sin. Not just the, these accidental mistakes that, that might happen. That's not what the law does. The law reveals the deeper issue of a depraved heart that is dead apart from the precious blood of Christ. For the unredeemed, 
the law accuses. It makes clear who we really are, as is depicted in that story from Augustine. We do not steal the pears because we need something to eat. We steal the pears because there's something that says we're not supposed to, and there's something about us that wants to be God and not be bound by such rules. And this is revealed, this deep rebelliousness the very curse in the garden is revealed and brought to the surface by the law and it's brought to the surface so that we can decide what to do with it and when the child of god when the children of promise read of this law our affections are stoked for the one who stood in our place and met it perfectly and we should be stoked to the fullest the law is accusing The law is a death sentence for those apart from Christ. But for those in Christ, it is is the greatest declaration of love that has ever been made. When we read of the law, when we understand the depths of our depravity in light of a perfectly holy God, how much bigger is the cross than it was before? Each time as a Christian, I understand the brokenness of my flesh just a little bit better. At the very same time, by the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit, I understand the significance of the cross just a little bit more than I did before. This is what the law is doing in those who are children of Abraham. Because in Christ, a better hope is introduced to the people than the law. This hope is better, and that it actually, as the verses we just read describe, has the power to draw us to God and to give us right standing before him. Through the law, we could not access the Father. The people did not access the Father. They got to go to a priest who could, was granted this just very distant uh, relationship, this very distant access for just a moment. Through the law, we couldn't access the Father because the law only addressed our actions. It did not change our heart. This is the, this is the great... Uh, The great trick of legalism, legalism can appear to be great. Like you you are capable of presenting yourself in a way that follows all the rules. You are capable as acting as, as, acting as if you have kept the law. You can present that image, you can cross the boxes, but you cannot change what's in here. The legalist can be the best there is at marking all the boxes and walking the line, but they can do so judging every person that walks by them, having all kinds of bitterness, like the older brother for the son that walks away. Legalism cannot change what is actually in your heart. And this is what must be redeemed through Christ for our hearts to be awakened and for us to have access to God. We have become sons and daughters through Christ because his advocacy for us it knows no end he never stops drawing us to uh, himself he never stops advocating for us verse 22 says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant I want to read our remaining verses in 23 through 28 I want to read of this better covenant The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood perfectly because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Again, the old priests were many in number because they died. And their sacrifices were many in number because they were sinners who had to make sacrifices of their own. And in God's abundant grace, this text here tells us that he allowed sinners to serve in those roles through the Levitical priesthood for a time. And he continues that grace today in allowing me, a man full of weakness, to share this very word with you. The priests were allowed to serve in the way that they were because their primary purpose was never to atone for sin, but to point to the one who would. And the one who would is described in the text we just read. He is innocent, meaning it wasn't just that his actions were pure and right. It's that his heart was pure and right. That he was never, like, it was never begrudging his submission to the Father. When he would turn from what the world offered and say, no, nah, I'm not interested in a stage, I have to go be with the Father, that was a reflection of a perfect heart that desired perfect community with the Father. He was innocent. And because his heart, his motives were pure and innocent, <coughs> he's described as unstained means he never acted out in sin, even when he was angry, even when he went full-blown, flipping the tables, it was perfect, righteous anger. He was unstained by sin, and thus he was separated from sinners. Even though he chose to be in the midst of sinners, that sinners might be brought to himself, he was never stained by that. He never was influenced by them to be something different than he was. The world had no sway on who he would be. He was not moved by the latest social cause that would give him, you know, um, some kind of credibility. He wasn't moved by whatever legalism would make the, the church people, the religious people like him more. He was unswayed in his devotion to the Father. And thus he was with sinners while being separated from them. And thus he was exalted above the heavens. On this basis, the law points him as the one who is proven perfect forever. He is the priest of the promise, the oath that was made to Abraham, and thus he is able to intercede for us forever. As we close this morning, I want to close by taking a few moments to consider the, this implication, the idea that Christ intercedes for us forever. This is found in verse 25, and I want to focus on three phrases from verse 25. It says this, consequently, meaning it's attaching to the previous verse, because his priesthood is perfect and eternal, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want to consider for a moment that word uttermost. This is the Greek word pantales, which means all complete, perfect, or completely, perfectly, utterly. 
he is able to save completely in the most perfect sense of the word. When Jesus saved you, Christian, he saved you completely. There was not a transgression that had taken place or one that was yet to come of which he was not fully aware. Not only was he fully aware of all that had happened and all that would come, but he is far more aware of it than you are because you have sins. You have committed that you walk in here today still not understanding. You haven't grown from them. You still don't understand the full implications of them. You don't, there are things about your heart and your mind that are so broken by sin that it will take years and eventually you'll stand before God still not realizing until that day the full effects of what they did and were doing in you. Yet Jesus, he knows all of that. He knows your wickedness far more than you do. He knows the source of your rebellion. He knows each thought that you have ever thought that you have already forgot about. And yet, there is not one thing that took place that he did not take with him to Calvary. Not one. As you walk in here today, your lackluster prayer life, it went to the cross with Jesus, our great high priest. The apathy that perhaps you had this week towards his word Maybe the fact that you weren't in there this week, he knew that. And he took that with him to the cross. The moments this week where you've experienced failure as a parent, as a friend, where you've failed to submit to authority in places where you needed to, Jesus knew that. And he took that to the cross. All of your moments of unbelief where you secretly question, God, where are you, were taken by Jesus to the cross on your behalf. Your heart is consistently conditioned by the world to wrestle and to challenge this reality. If the enemy cannot convince you that God is dead, and the fact that you're here means he wasn't able to convince you of that, his best plan now is to keep you away from the good news that because of Jesus, God is not only alive, but he is madly in love with you. This is what kept the prodigal son away for so long. Can you imagine the thoughts he had after he left the father? There's no way the father could want him back. There's no way the father could accept me as I am. And he, he stayed away for so long because there's no way the father could want him back after what he did. And yet, those were all lies that he believed that kept him so long. The truth of who the father was is that the father was waiting at the door each day, just waiting for the son to come, that he could run to him. And because of Jesus, this is true of you. You have been saved to the uttermost through Christ. Therefore, you no longer need to hide from God, but that second phrase, draw near to God through him. Him being Jesus. Who did Jesus save to the utter, uttermost? Those who come. Over and over in the Gospels, those who come to Jesus in faith and ask for healing are granted it. Over and over again. Jesus just wants you to come. And when you come, he has everything that you need. By the same means, those who come to Jesus for salvation today are granted it. He desires to give it. For at the Son's feet, we are brought near to God. This is what the legalists couldn't fathom then, and they still can't fathom now. 
Jesus tells them over and over again, but they did not understand. They could not get off of the law. The law meant that they could accomplish something by their own means, that they could pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and that they could comprehend. But a gracious God who saves you not on the basis of who you are, but who Christ is, was something they could not fathom. And so over and over again, like a carpenter trying to saw a board with a hammer, the Pharisees tried to use the law to accomplish salvation instead of acknowledging their need for the promised Redeemer who stood right in front of them. They wanted access to God, and Jesus lovingly shares with them again and again that the means to the Father is, in fact, the Son. Through Christ, we have been welcomed into the chamber of the Most High God. And in that place, our Redeemer, that third phrase, lives to make intercession. Child of God, you need to know this morning that not one moment goes by when your great high priest does not think of you. The Levitical priests, they probably did, they didn't know all the people that would come. They forgot their names. I mean, I can only imagine how much they might forgot their names. They didn't know them. Your high priest, not a moment goes by when you are not on his heart, when he does not think of you. His perfect atoning work never ceases to drape over you. He lives to make intercession. In that same commentary by William Newell, he clarifies this statement. Our blessed Lord is interceding for us, but he is in no sense appeasing God. All that God's holy being and righteousness, God righteous government could demand, was once for all, completely and forever, satisfied at the cross. This means that Jesus' intercession now, it's not, a, it's not a matter of appeasing a God who's constantly angry, an angry father who wants to destroy us, and Jesus is constantly begging him not to. No, 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 that was taken care of at the cross. Nor is it a matter of Jesus simply continually chanting prayers on behalf of his people. What this means, that Jesus lives to intercede for us, is that he is continually representing us before the Father so that we can draw near through him, and that he defends us against all of Satan's accusations and attacks against us. Like the high priest of old, he now, as the great high priest, represents us before the Father. But unlike them, he represents us perfectly and forever, welcoming us into the presence of the Most High God. He knows you will fail, just like he knew this of Peter. But consider the words he said to Peter before his denial in Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. Jesus knew Peter would falter. <laughs> he knew it. But Satan couldn't have him because Jesus said no. Because Christ would not allow it. Thus he charged him to get back up and continue forward. Jesus assures him, when you turn back, when you come out of this, encourage your brothers and get back to work. These words are applicable to all who belong to Jesus. Satan demands to have you, but Jesus Christ intercedes for you that your faith may not fail. And thus, like Paul, you can confidently declare, who can condemn me? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In Romans 8.34, this is the source of Paul's strength. This is why Paul could continue forward. And I mean, if you haven't, if you haven't read through the book of Acts, I just, I just did that a couple weeks ago for the first time in years. I just read Acts start to finish. And I just, it was hard for me to fathom sometimes all that Paul endured. And yet Paul's source of strength was the truth that Jesus Christ, the one who had an indestructible life, the perfect high priest, is indeed interceding for us. And thus he knew nothing that came his way could could succeed because it couldn't keep him from the access to the Father he had been given. This morning, I just want, want to leave you with those truths to consider. I want you to know deep down in your bones that the Father delights in you not on the basis of what you've done this week, but on the basis of what Christ has done once and for all. And Christ continues to intercede for you before the Father each and every moment. The enemy cannot have you. As you prepare this week uh, to meet with your DNA groups, your discipleship groups, to discuss Hebrews 7 and the guys a couple weeks from now, I just encourage you to pay special attention to verse 25. Let the implications of what Christ is doing for you now stir your affections for him. And if you need some commentary on that, uh, we've been handing out copies of Gentle and Lowly for some time now. And chapter 8 does a great job of just very much focusing on that idea, and I would highly recommend that. And this morning, let's pray um, together before we come to the communion table.